Amen. Thank you, Brother Dale. Let's uh, turn to the 25th Psalm. We'll finish it up tonight. And uh, we'll go down to verse, uh, what is it, 19? And uh, I think you're going to enjoy this tonight. It's just a blessing. It's very encouraging. And uh, we've entitled it, based on what David says here, Deliver Us From Evil. Now, remind you of something. That's a quote from something. Where does that come from? Lord's Prayer. Very good. Or the model prayer, or John MacArthur calls it the disciples' prayer. Because Jesus didn't actually pray it. He was teaching them how to pray. And um, so when we think about that, deliver us from evil. Now, we live in a world that tells us evil doesn't really exist. And that makes sense. If you believe that everything came from nothing, and it's from evolution, and uh, we don't really have a soul, we don't have a spirit, we don't have a divine being, nothing like that, well, then there's really no evil. There are some things that are better than others, some things that are more helpful to the species, to the race, to carry on, those kind of things, but nothing really evil. But the Bible addresses the fact that there is a real devil, there are real demons, and there is real evil. There's right, there's wrong, and there is evil. We live in a world of evil. We live in a world where we are touched by evil every single day. We live in a world where, sadly, even as the people of God, we participate in evil, don't we? And uh, the world tries to, oh, that's just natural. Oh, it doesn't really, that's just... You know, one of those things that comes along, don't let it bother you or anything like that. But it still, whether you're lost or saved, evil enslaves you. And it promises freedom, but it never can deliver anything like that. We only find our freedom in God and our joy in God. And so uh, sin and evil are always going to try to tempt you. This is a better way. Think of what the serpent said to Eve. Oh, you won't die. But God knows in the day you eat it, you'll be like him, knowing good from evil. Well, that was all she needed to hear. And uh, sin makes a lot of promises that it can't deliver upon. But we find ourselves being entrapped by evil and living in a world of evil. And uh, I've made reference to this a few times lately where Isaiah is in the presence of God. It's glorious. It's amazing. There are angels. There's smoke. There's power. All of that. And all uh, Isaiah can do is go, Woe is me, for I have seen the Lord. And I'm a man of unclean lips, he said. And then he goes, I come from a generation of unclean lips. It's not just me, Isaiah said. It's the whole culture in which I live. Well, that's the way it is for us. We live on an earth that is cursed, and we have to live under that curse. One day it'll be lifted when Jesus sits on the throne in Jerusalem. But until then... And until heaven, we live under the curse. That's why you get tired. That's why you get sick. That's why you have allergies. That's why, um, you know, your kids, uh, Isaac and Jenny, have gone through this this week. That's why they throw up in the middle of the night multiple times and uh, all of that kind of stuff. That's why we have hospitals. That's why we have funeral homes. That's why we have clinics. All kinds of things are out there. The world is under a curse. Paul said in the book of Romans that we can't hear it, but the earth is groaning, groaning under the curse. It's not just about us. It's about the whole of the earth longing for the day when it'll be released from that curse. Deliver us from evil. And it touches us in a lot of ways. Obviously, we think about things that happen when people get sick with cancer and things like that, heart problems, 
those kind of things. We go, oh, we long for the day when we'll be delivered from all of that because that is a part of the fall and a part of the curse. But think about this. Why do we have to have law enforcement? Well, because there's evil out there. And why is it that some people, uh, even though they lock their doors, even though they set their alarm, they're still going to be victims of crime even tonight? Why is it that uh, those poor people in Georgia sent their daughter to college and then she ends up being murdered, right? Uh, all of those kind of things that happens. We live in a world where there's a lot of evil. Why is there sex trafficking? Why is there pornography? Why is there fentanyl? Why is there widespread drug and alcohol abuse? Why do people drive drunk? Why do marriages fall apart? Why is it that we take advantage of other people or other people take advantage of us? And so uh, we look at this fallen world and so we can understand why it is that the lord would have us pray deliver us from evil and that's because we are stuck here and we are trapped in all of this and we can't get out of this except when the lord of course takes us home so um, as we think about why jesus came to earth he came here to live in the midst of all of this evil to suffer under the curse of evil even though he never was a sinner and that's one of those things that just whenever anybody says why do uh, good things happen to uh, or why do bad things happen let's put get it right to good people we have to remember that according to what we find in the scripture there's no one good but God and yet when God came to earth what happened he suffered the worst evil of all, and he bore the wrath of God on the cross for us. So we are here in an evil world, and Jesus even promised us in the world, you'll have tribulation. Have you had any of that today? Have you had any of that this week? Have you suffered uh, tribulation, problems, pressure, stress, temptation, all of those kind of things? It's the world in which we live. That's the atmosphere that we breathe, and so we long for the day when there will be a funeral for sin. And boy, are we ever going to cheer when that takes place. You don't normally cheer at a funeral, but when sin is done away with and Jesus is uh, ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords, what a glorious day that's going to be and we're going to be liberated from all of that. But in the meantime, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil because it is real and it is something that it affects every single one of us and will until we go home. Well, David writes about it, Psalm 25 and verse 19. And kind of a prayer. Consider my enemies, for they are many. And they hate me with a cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. And let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of their troubles. Okay, deliver us from evil. Let's talk about this as we work through this psalm. Why do we need to be delivered from evil? Aren't we good people? Don't we get everything right? Aren't we wise? Don't we know the Lord? Don't we know the Scripture? We could go on and on and on, and yet all of us stumble and fall, all of us get tripped up, all of us come under attack, all of us are vulnerable in some area because we haven't been totally glorified yet. But um, when we think about this idea of being delivered from evil, 
from David's perspective, deliver us from evil. Why? Because we are opposed by a formidable foe. David said, consider my enemies, for they are many. Boy, if he could say that, we could sure say that, can't we? Because we know we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Well, where are they? How many are they? What are their plans? What is the next thing they're going to use to come up against you? I don't know. And so we fight this unseen battle, and we're told by the Apostle Paul, it's not just something we do maybe in our quiet time in the morning or when we feel the pressure. Our lifestyle is supposed to be one of doing warfare and living for the glory of God. That's why Paul said we are to stand strong, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then he tells us we're to put on something, the armor of God, and just to make sure we don't put on the pieces that are comfortable or the pieces that we like or the pieces that feel good. He said, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the, uh, King James Version says, the wiles. You ever heard of wily coyote? What does that mean? Tricky. The wiles means the trickiness of the devil. He doesn't advertise what he's doing. He doesn't clue us in on what he is doing. He likes to do sneak attacks. He likes to kick you when you're down. He likes to uh, surprise you with the temptation or the stumbling or the fall. And so we've got to have the armor on all the time. The belt of truth. That means we are committed to fighting the battle. We're not hypocrites. We don't say we are soldiers of God and then don't have our loins girded up. We put on that belt and it's a belt of truth. It's a belt of non-hypocrisy, the belt of commitment, we might say. And then we have to have on the breastplate that protects. The Bible talks about thinking in our heart. And so we might uh, consider this, our heart, this part that the uh, breastplate protects is our thinking. Because we get attacked in our thinking. There are arrows coming your way to attack your thinking and get you off track to thinking wrong about God, about life, about yourself, about sin, about creation, to get you all messed up and out of whack. But the breastplate also covers this lower part here, the abdomen. And in uh, the Bible times, whenever they thought about, uh, like in uh, Philippians, if you have a King James Version, it says, if there be any bowels and mercies... What are you talking about there? It's the abdomen. And this is the emotional, the feeling part of us. That's why when you come up over a hill and you see a cop, it gets you right in your gut, right? And so righteousness protects the way we think and the way that we feel because we get tricked when we think wrong or when we follow our emotions. Got to be careful with that. We need them protected. And then we put on shoes, And the way it is worded in Ephesians 6, the shoes are the preparation of the gospel of peace. And I've heard people preach saying, you need to be a soul winner. You need to be taking the gospel to different people. Well, sorry, that's not what that means in that particular context. This is not about running. It's not about going. It's about standing. How many times does Paul say stand in Ephesians chapter 6? They would wear shoes as soldiers, Roman soldiers, so that they could stand firm, so that they could fight with their sword, holding their shield, and not slip, not fall, not be knocked over. In fact, uh, there were traps that 
soldiers would lay. They would sharpen sticks, a jillion of them, and they would bury them in the ground with that sharp point uh, sticking up out of the ground, then cover it with leaves or something like that. And then they would lead you on that direction. So when you're pursuing them, you step on that, and those sharp points pierce your feet. How good of a fighter do you think you're going to be if you've got a bunch of punctures in the bottom of your feet? So they came up with sandals that were thick enough that they could wear where they, it would protect their feet. You've got to have your feet protected if you're going to swing your sword, if you're going to hold a shield and uh, uh, parry off the blows of the enemy. But then they also made them kind of like cleats because they would put little studs in the bottom of them so you could dig in and you could stand firm because in hand-to-hand combat, if uh, the enemy soldier swings their sword, you're either putting up your shield or you're taking your sword to knock that thing away. Well, if you slip and fall on the ground, you're dead meat. And so you got to stand firm. And Paul is saying here the shoes are the preparation, the readiness of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is the good news that we have peace with God and we have his resources for every battle that we face. So we don't have to turn and run and we don't have to cower down. We don't have to slip and fall, but we dig in and we stand firm and we're ready to fight because we also have a sword and we also have a shield and we are able to stand firm in the peace that we have with the Lord because of what Christ did for us. So we're always ready to stand. We're always ready to dig in. We're always ready to fight in any circumstances because we've got the shoes of the readiness that comes from the good news, the gospel of peace with God. And then we've got also, we've got a sword. And we know what the sword is. The sword is the word of God. And uh, it's the Greek word makaira for sword. It's not the great big sword you swing like a baseball bat because you've got to hold your shield. It's a short 6 to 18 inch type sword that will fit in your belt. You pull it out at a moment's notice and you skillfully use it and you get up close and personal and specific with that sword. And that's why we need to know the Word of God. We need to know its principles because it's the sword that we use. We've got to know how to apply it to our sin, to our temptations, and we can't just use it in a general way. All temptation be gone and banished. Wouldn't that be nice? All demons just leave forever and never come back. You can't do that. You've got to fight, and we wrestle not against flesh and blood, and we get defeated because we don't use the Word of God. And a lot of times that's because we don't know it for our particular situation. you got a problem with lying? You better learn the verses that deal with lying. you got a problem with your sexuality? You need to learn the verses that have to deal with that. you have a problem with integrity? You need to learn those verses and fight the temptations that come your way and be specific with those as you hold your sword. And then we've also got a helmet, and the helmet, it says, is the helmet of salvation. And Paul is not saying, put on your belt, and put on your shoes, and put on your breastplate, and uh, all of that, and now get saved. That wouldn't make any sense. The helmet is, as it's described when he writes to the Thessalonians, the hope of salvation. 
And we know the battle's not going to last forever. We know that we've already got victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we wear our helmet because we have a hope that we're not going to be here forever. We're not going to be fighting forever. We're not going to ever slip and fall when we get to heaven. We're not going to be blindsided when we get to heaven because the presence of evil will be banished. That is our hope. Christ is our hope. The promises of God, they are our hope. And we have the helmet of the hope of salvation. And then we have another one that's called the shield of faith, with which we can quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. In those days that Paul writes this, they would take arrows and they would dip them in tar and light them on fire and then launch them at you. So even if the arrow didn't actually hit you, the tar would splatter and burn and do a lot of damage and set fires in different places. And Paul said, you need the shield, the shield of faith, the faith that every time temptation comes, we choose not to believe the tempter, but we believe God. We believe what His Word says, and we put our faith in action. And he said, and that is what quenches the fiery darts of the wicked one. And then he says right after that, that we are to pray with all prayer for all saints at all times. And we don't pray enough, and we forget it, and we sometimes Pray only when we feel like it, only when there's an emergency, and yet we're to be praying, as he said in another place, without ceasing. And that's how we uh, fight, that's how we are armed, that's how we are ready. And uh, when we look at David's life, did he live like that? Yes, because he said, consider my enemies, for they are many. Now David didn't know how many enemies he had, they didn't have the technology that we have. They didn't have spy satellites or anything like that. But David had to always be on guard. I want you to think about how do you become king? You only become king upon the death of another king. Yeah, what a way to go, right? And David was always under threat of assassination. And he didn't know where it was going to come from or who it was going to be, but God does. And so he cries out to God, and he is asking the Lord to uh, consider my enemies because they are many. And I think by extension we could say, and David's not really sure uh, who they might be or where they might come from. And so I want you to uh, think about this. When you have a lot of enemies... And David had already prayed this earlier in this same psalm. And so this is something that is bearing down on his mind. It has to be on constant alert, just like we do. Now I want you to think about something. His enemies might be an invading army. That could happen, couldn't it? Israel could be invaded by the Philistines or somebody like that. David was a man of war. That could be where the enemy comes in. Well, that would be in some ways, easier, at least you know who the enemy is. But the enemies also could be somebody that's not wearing a uniform or flying a flag. My dad told me that in uh, Vietnam, you had the North Vietnamese Army, they wore uniforms, they identified themselves, and then you had the Viet Cong. You remember hearing about them? And they didn't wear uniforms. They looked like everybody else. They were like civilians. And sometimes they would work in military installations. Uh, my dad's barber turned out to be a Viet Cong. And he wired a bunch of stuff 
at uh, their base, including the chapel where my dad preached, and uh, they all thought he was a good guy, and they couldn't tell the difference. He didn't wear a uniform. He didn't fly a flag. He was careful what he said. He acted like he was their friend. You think that could happen in the palace in Jerusalem? Well, sure. There could be somebody there that buddies up with David that, uh, you know, we're best friends, aren't we? And man, you're a great king and all of that, ready just to stab him in the back or poison his food or whatever. So he had to always be watching because sometimes his enemies didn't invade. They didn't wear uniforms. They didn't fly a flag or anything like that. In fact, sometimes if you read through the books of... Uh, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, there were times when kings might be killed by a fellow citizen of Israel. You say, oh, how could that happen? Well, Lee Harvey Oswald was an American citizen. You know, John Wilkes Booth was an American citizen. And so those kind of things happen. David has to be constantly on guard. It might be someone who is a trusted friend or a servant. And so that's why they had people tasting their food and doing all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, things can slip by you. And there were kings that were poisoned, kings that were stabbed, kings that were ambushed. All kinds of things would happen. So if you want to stay king very long, you've got to be ready for all of that. But here's kind of the worst thing. It might even be a family member. Now, it hasn't happened yet, but you know the story of Absalom. David's own son caused a rebellion. David had to run for his life. And so it might be even like a personal enemy. I was thinking about this. David has to be on guard. You suppose Goliath had any uh, relatives? And they might come over and say, we'll take care of that guy that killed our champion. You know? Uh, do you suppose later on after David sins with Bathsheba, you think Bathsheba had any relatives that might be a little bitter? You think that Uriah, the Hittite, might have had some relatives that said, I'm going to get that guy. And planning and plotting for all of that. You see, what I'm saying is, when David says, consider my enemies, he's not just talking about a far-off en uh, enemy across the sea that might or might not come or anything like that. He's living up close and personal in all kinds of things, known and unknown, seen and unseen, anticipated and unanticipated. And he has to be on the alert just like we do against our particular enemy that comes against us. And that's why it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, Be sober-minded, uh, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, you're not the only one that is suffering. You're not the only one stumbling. You're not the only one falling. Everybody goes through those times, and there's somebody somewhere who has it even worse than you do. So deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Why? Number two, because of their intense and unending hatred. Hey, folks, you can't make a truce with certain types of enemies. And you better not make a truce with certain types of enemies. And David is talking here about enemies that uh, the thing he knows about them is that they hate him 
and they're not going to quit. They're not going to go, oh, David's having a rough day. Let's back off. They're not going to do that. They're going to kick him while he's down. And whenever he stumbles and falls spiritually, they're going to go attack and they're going to go after him. Now, you notice the description in uh, my translation. It says cruel hatred. Now, you may have a different translation. I don't know what it says, but it's never good, is it? Hatred's always cruel. In the New International Version, it uses the word fiercely. So it's a fierce hatred. Uh, the uh, English Standard Version says violently. It's a, a violent hatred. Think about that, what that means and what that implies. The Berean Standard Version, I'm sure you probably have never heard of that, but it uses the word vicious Vicious hatred. Now, I say all of that to get you to the idea this is not just somebody who kind of sort of doesn't like David or kind of sort of has a hard time with him and, yeah, you know, we just don't get along. We don't see eye to eye. Uh, no, this is different. This is the kind of hatred where it's cruel, where it's fierce, where it's vicious, and where it's violent. Okay, see where we're going with all of that? They, uh, are, these enemies are not going to be content to draw up a truce, to have a peace treaty, or to come to any kind of agreement. This is not their goal. Their goal is one thing, David's death, David's destruction. Now, doesn't that remind you that Jesus told us that the thief only comes to, what's the first thing? Kill. Yeah, sounds like this, doesn't it? Steal and destroy. It, those are violent actions. And so the, the devil is not trying to negotiate with you. Uh, if he is, it's a trick. If it is, you're going to lose. So you can't compromise with what's right or what's wrong or good or bad. And far too many people do. And David had spies and he had his intelligence uh, forces out there. But they were limited in all of that. And so his prayer is for the omniscient one to be an insider. He can, God can go into the enemy camp and they don't even know he's there. And he can do things to set up victory for David and defeat for the enemy that nobody even knows about. How many times uh, did it look like Israel was going to be defeated and then God sends angels into the Assyrian camp and what did they kill? 185,000 in one night? And they didn't even have modern weaponry to do anything like that. One angel did that. And uh, there are other times when the enemy would be confused and they would turn on each other and kill themselves. I mean, God can do all kinds of things because he gives his people the victory. And this is what David is praying for. And he may be thinking back on stories that he heard about Israel when they were first coming into the promised land, when they were under Joshua conquering things. Think about a God who can take a ragtag group of slaves have them march around a city wall one time per a day, and then on the seventh day they march around seven times, they shout and blow trumpets, and the walls come tumbling down, and they win. This is the God who says, victory at any cost. I'll bring my victory unto you, and you don't have to worry about it. You just have to obey me and walk with me. And this is uh, what David is certainly praying for, that the enemies that he has would be defeated regardless of the severity of the situation in second chronicles chapter 16 verse 9 for the eyes of the lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal 
to him. Isn't that good? He is never caught off guard. He is never blindsided. He never has a time where he goes, oops, didn't see that coming. We do, but he never does. And so we have his faithful, loyal protection, and all he asks is that we be loyal to him. Well, that's not much to ask when you think about what all he has done and is doing and will do for us. How dare we not be loyal to him? Okay, Deliver us from evil. Why? Number three. Because God is indeed our only hope. Now, I know it's easy for us to say that. I mean, our money says, in God we trust. But let me just ask you a question and be honest. If that's the motto of America, is it true? I don't think so. I don't think so. And it's easy for us to sing, you know, all of the songs. My hope is built on nothing less. You know, those, those kind of things. And I trust in you and leaning on the everlasting arms. That's out of the uh, book of Deuteronomy, by the way. And, um, you know, we have all kinds of things that we say and that we tell other people. Just trust God. Just walk by faith. You'll make it and go on. And then we're the next one to stumble and fall. Isn't that funny how we do that? Well, no, it's not really funny, is it? It's strange. It's weird. And so we have to understand our hope is not in technology. Our hope is not in whoever's the next president that's elected. Our hope is not in how much money we have in our retirement account. Our hope is not in the way other people treat us or anything like that. I mean, we kind of know that. And we would probably say amen to that, wouldn't we? but we sure don't feel like it when it gets taken away from us. And so uh, deliver us from evil because God is our only hope. And he says in verse 20, keep my soul. What's that mean? Well, the word keep can also be translated guard. It's the idea of a military term. And uh, my soul, that's a way of saying my life. You know what David's saying there? Guard my life and deliver me. Get me out of this mess that I'm in and don't let me be ashamed for I put my trust in you so think about this keep means to guard we want the Lord to guard us David wants that my soul I want him to guard my life I want him to deliver me and you know what I thought about when I saw that deliver me that means get me out of something I think David had some kind of a clue that he was about to be assassinated and that he was walking into the trap that was set for him, an ambush or something like that. And so he says, deliver me, get me out of this. Kind of the idea that uh, he didn't think that he could get himself out, but he knew that the Lord could. A trap was set for him, and he was going to be killed. And when he says, let me not be ashamed, uh, that word can also be translated, don't let me be disappointed for putting my trust in you. I'm laying everything on you, Lord. Please, don't let me be disappointed in all of this. He's anticipating and praying for victory in this. I'm trusting in you, Lord. I'm laying it all on you. I'm not holding anything back in reserve. It's kind of like uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're to be a living sacrifice. Lay it all on the altar. That's a risky thing when you think about it from a human standpoint. But it's not when you think about it from God's standpoint. So God is uh, going to do this. And David is saying, Lord, 
do this for the glory of your name. Because if I trust in you and I get killed, then all of my enemies go, see, his God was no good. His God was weak. His God was, had no power. His God didn't know what was happening. And they think they're going to win. I noticed in the, particularly the Old Testament, God protects his name and his reputation. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 9, it says, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it, and surround us and cut us off uh, and cut our name off from the earth? And then he uh, asks this question to God. Then what will you do for your great name? Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations uh, which have heard of your name will speak. Okay, uh, Joshua is saying, Lord, we got a problem. If we get defeated, you're going to look bad. Do you know Moses prayed that same kind of a prayer when uh, God was really angry with the uh, children of Israel and so was Moses? But then Moses said, but Lord, if you wipe them out and kill them and start all over with me, then what, what are the people in Egypt going to say about you? They're going to say, oh, he could get them out of slavery, but he couldn't get them out of the wilderness. He could get them into the desert, but he couldn't get them into the land. It, his plans all fell apart. Please, Lord, for your name's sake, act and preserve us. And God honored that prayer. And if we would just stop and think about how our sin dishonors God, defames God, when we think about how the way that we live and the bad choices that we make when we knew better, those are the kind of things where people say, that's a Christian, and that's what their God does for them, and that's what it means to follow, well, no thanks. And so God protects his name and his honor. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 13, And Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear it, for by your might you brought these people out from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face and that your cloud stands above them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore to give them. Therefore, he killed them in the wilderness. And so Moses is just saying, Lord, how will this glorify you? Please be merciful for the glory of your name. God cares about his name and we bear the name of Jesus and we proclaim him by the way that we live and the things that we go through. And when we drag his name through the mud, he doesn't like that. That's not what he wants to do. His name is to be exalted and it is to be glorified. And that's why Joshua and Moses both prayed, Lord, this is going to cause your reputation to suffer. This is going to make you look weak. This is going to make you look like the pagan gods are stronger than you. And so they appealed to that and to the glory of God, and rightly so. So deliver us from evil, number four, because the people of God have an effect on the whole nation. Now, did you notice in verses 21 and 22? David says, let integrity and righteousness preserve me, for I wait for you. You ever do that? You ever wait for God? Righteousness and integrity preserve me. That's why that's so important. And then he says, redeem Israel, Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. David, you forget what you were talking about? 
You were talking about you. Uphold me by righteousness and integrity and, and deliver me, all of these kind of things he's been saying. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, his record skips and he goes, oh, and redeem Israel. What did he do? Fall asleep while he was praying and then wake up and where was I? And then say that? No, I think it all goes together. You know why? David was a protector and a defender of Israel. David was a force for righteousness in Israel. That's why he is the standard bearer for kings for Israel, right? Redeem Israel, he says, out of all of their trouble. I want you to think about this. Don't put your hope in a president because a president can't save our nation. Don't put your hope in the military because the military can't save our nation. We're thankful for them, but they can't save us. Don't put your hope in, um, in the economy. You know, about the time you think, oh, this is great. My retirement fund is doing well. And so the stock market may crash. There may be a downturn. Don't put your hope in that. But the Bible tells us, why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. That's where we find ourselves, uh, where we need to be, and that's where our security is. He's promised to take care of us, and that's his responsibility. So never underestimate the power and the influence of righteousness, prayer, and the power of God's word. You know, sometimes we look around and we go, oh, it's just me. What can one person do? My voice will never be heard. Well, wait a minute. You can talk to the king of the universe, the one who controls the heart. Did you know that it says in the Bible that the hand of the king, no matter how wicked, the the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. So it really doesn't matter what king it is, whether it's the premier of China, whether it's Vladimir Putin or uh, the guy in North Korea or one of the mullahs in Iran, or whether it's uh, President Biden. It doesn't really matter. God's got their heart right there in his hand. And every once in a while he goes, hmm, and turns it where he wants to. And that's why sometimes we go, didn't see that coming. Why? God is working everything for his plan. So leave it with him and don't worry about that kind of stuff. But here's what you can do. Did you know the Bible talks about believers like us? Even though we may be few in number, even though we may not have political power, we may not have all the money in the world, we may not have the ear of Hollywood, the media may not be backing us up, but we still win. And we are still more powerful than anything in this world. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, its saltiness, then how shall it be seasoned? You can't revitalize it, can you? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do they light a lamp and then put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So... Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Just one person. But if you have a whole lot of one persons doing it, it becomes a group, it becomes a movement, it becomes a force. And when we are uh, on fire for the Lord, when we are 
we have our light shining, we may be just one, two, three, four, five. Well, then as we begin to multiply and pass our light along, maybe it becomes 10, maybe it becomes 50, maybe it becomes 100, maybe it becomes 1,000, maybe it turns into a million. We just don't know. But that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is not to gather up all of the, uh, the thousands and millions of people and say, okay, light your lights. That's not our job. Our job is to be the people of God and to let our light shine, to be salty and to preserve uh, and re- uh, stop, slow down, I guess we would say, the spoilage in this world because we're salt that's how they preserve things and then let your light shine so people can see what's really going on because they're never going to see it through the media are they they're never going to see it through politicians are they that's why we're here and that's why you personally are to let your light shine regardless if anybody else does it or not let your light shine in the darkness. In Proverbs 29:2 it says, "When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, the people groan." Heard any groaning lately? Where are the righteous? Are you praying for the leaders of our nation? Are you praying for your president? Are you praying for your vice president? Are you praying for members of Congress? Are you praying for Supreme Court judges and other judges? Are you praying for the military? Are you praying for law enforcement? I mean, we could go on and on. Are you praying for the mayor and the city council of your town? Are you praying for the school board that is overseeing your schools? We have problems in all of those areas and corruption in all of those areas. And could it be because the people of God are not really shining their light in those areas? We retreat and our light shines bright in here. We don't need it in here. It's out there where it's dark. That's where the light is needed. Where are we shining? Where are we shining? When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. We need to pray about that. And we need to be involved as much as we can in those type of things. And then in um, Genesis 18, 32 and 33, I've always found it interesting. Uh, when it's clear that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham goes, oh, 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 wait a minute, that's where Lot lives. And so he says, uh, Lord, can we uh, kind of make a deal here? If you find any righteous people there, will you hold off on the destruction? And they talk about numbers all the way down. And in uh, Genesis 1832 you think people don't make a difference even in Sodom listen to what it says then he said let not the Lord be angry and I will speak but once more suppose 10 just 10 should be found there and God said I will not destroy for the sake of 10 and then the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham And Abraham returned to his place. Do you realize that that major story and that horrible sin that we've been alerted to in the book of Genesis, Sodom was extremely and exceedingly wicked. And God was saying to them, you know what? If there are ten people that are righteous, I won't destroy them. Isn't that interesting? And I wonder in our nation... If we, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't mean just us, but all the way around, 
The Bible says in, uh, I believe it's 2 Thessalonians, something about restraint and restraining. Do you realize that we are holding back the forces of evil? Wait till after we're called out of here and then see what happens when there's no restraint. And that's why the world doesn't like you. That's why they make fun of you. That's why they reject you. That's why you don't fit in. You belong to a different world. You belong to a different army. You have a different master. You march to a different drumbeat. The Lord God Almighty, right? And so David said, deliver us from evil because you and I don't have the capacity in and of ourselves to do that. We'd like to think we do, but we don't. That's a good way of getting defeat. Let him, Paul said, who thinks he stands, take heed lest he, what? Fall. Yeah. And that's what we do when we stand in our own strength. So if we try to deliver ourselves, overcome our sins, defeat everything we think that is wrong, we're in for a fall. But when we look and we see who our God is, we see him in creation, we see him in redemption, we see him in his deliverance of his people out of sin, and we cry out to him, Lord, I can't defeat this, I can't overcome this, deliver me from evil because my enemy, I mean, there's a lot of them and I can't see where they are and what they're doing, but you are the one who knows everything. Please do that and please fight this battle for me and please deliver me from evil. And that's why Jesus told us to pray that in the model prayer. That is a legit prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us around all of those kind of things. And deliver us when we're so stupid we fall off into the ditch and we can't get ourselves out and we can't untangle ourselves from the net and we can't get the ropes off and we can't cut the chains. Somebody else is going to have to do it. And the Lord is saying to you and to me, I'll do it. Call upon me. Deliver us, O Lord, from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, we come to you because when we read um, verses like this, we forget to think about the treachery of people and situations that David was facing when he had to always be on the alert. And there was always a threat to his life, always a threat to his rule and reign. He could never just sit back and have it cushy. There was always something that was happening somewhere and at some time. And he realized he only had one place to go and only one hope. And that was to you. Well, help us to learn from that because Paul said these things are written for our warning and our encouragement. And help us to remember you're the same faithful God who watches over us. May we put our armor on. May we stand strong against the powers of darkness. And may we stand strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And we ask you, Lord, just like David did as we look at these, the breakdown of these verses. Oh, Father, we're crying out to you for us. If we're battling alcohol, deliver us from evil. If we're battling pornography, deliver us from evil. If we're battling pride, deliver us from evil. If we're battling just plain old self-sufficiency, deliver us from evil. If we're battling uh, having a crisis of faith and believing the word of God, deliver us from evil. And we could go on and on and on and on because we can't get out of it ourselves. But you are the one who rescues us. Thank you for that. And please, deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.